for many of for us, many of us Christmas, Christmas is a time, is a time of, year of year that holds, that holds some, of our, some of our dearest memories. We're introduced as kids to this season that brings our loved ones together and is filled with celebration. We sang songs, set up nativities, decorated houses. We learned Christmas is actually a real story with shepherds, wise men, Joseph and Mary. The story of when God the Father gave his son. But now that I have children of my own, it feels like the story of Christmas is simply a story about more. More toys, more things. And even though I'm the parent, I gotta admit that in all the busyness, I buy into it too. I've traded away the best story in the world for what's on sale. What if God had something better than this for all of us? I wanna show my kids the real story of Christmas this Advent season. And honestly, I don't know what this will mean for our family. I hope it changes the way we spend money, who we bless, the type of gifts we give, and just how we talk and think about Jesus. The story of Christmas isn't told with free two-day shipping or Black Friday deals. The story of Christmas changed the world. So shouldn't it change us? Worship fully, spend less, give more, love all. This is our 14th year of doing Advent Conspiracy, and last year we raised 98 grand and gave it all away. Uh, this year we are dividing our projects into three areas. We're going to drill wells through Living Water International to give the gift of clean water to some of the least of these around the world. Second is that we're going to partner with Orphan Care, uh, both in Belize through Hopewell Children's Home and then uh, in Poland through Imago Hearts that are ministering to Ukrainian uh, orphans. And then third, uh, we're going to take some of the money, a third of it, and give it back to you to bless those in our city uh, who are experiencing need, whether that's increased heating bills or electric bills or medical bills, or they just need to experience the touch of our Lord Jesus Christ and his generosity. Um, one of the things we believe around here, if you're new, is that Christmas can still change the world, and it's not by buying gifts. It's by being generous and giving of ourselves, and so we try to restrain ourselves in that area of materialism, and we try to bless the least of these around the world. So as of last weekend, we had $3,868 raised. You can give uh, today. Uh, we'll have offerings at each of our three Christmas Eve services. You can give any time in December, just designate it to Advent Conspiracy, and then all that money will go uh, to those most in need. So that's what we're doing. Um, yeah, we'll see what God does this year. Let me pray for us as we dive into his word. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to open the Bible. Thank you that you not only inspired it to be written, but even now your Holy Spirit is going to open our minds and our hearts to understand it and to love it and to live in light of it. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak to every single person in this room. Through me or in spite of me, speak, because we need to hear from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, tis is the season for darkness. Did you know that in three days, December 21st, it is the shortest day of the year? Uh, it's always my brother's birthday, but it's the shortest day of the year. Yeah, you got the worst one, man. Do you ever get tired of waking up and it's dark, driving to work and it's dark, working all day only to see the sun peek out from like your office window or something like that, and then you drive home in the dark? And you're like, oh, it's 4.30, I should probably go to bed. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why Duluth is such a challenging place to live. It's not the frigid cold, it's not the crazy amounts of snow, even though we got that, it's kind of fun. It's not even the sheer length of winter. It's the lack of sunlight. It's dark all the time. But Christmas season kind of offsets that a little bit, doesn't it? Because there's Christmas lights piercing the darkness. People decorate inside, outside. There's light all over the place. If I have to drive home at 5 o'clock and it's dark, at least I get to drive by Bentleyville, right? And see the holiday lights. There's, there's very few things that are as cozy as sitting by a lit up Christmas tree with something warm in your hands and a fuzzy blanket wrapped around you. Makes it feel like you're in a Hallmark movie, right? But why have Christians historically put up lights and lit candles at Christmas time? Why do we have traditions like Advent candles and calendars? Before light bulbs, why would you risk lighting candles and putting them on a tree? Or hanging them in a wreath. I mean, that sounds like a terrible idea, right? It's because Christians have remembered at Christmas time that Jesus is the light of the world. And light pushes back darkness. It's a theme that the Apostle John picks up late in his life to not only describe Jesus, but to remind us that as Jesus' people, we are to live as people of the light. What I want to wrestle with this morning, and as we contemplate the coming birth of Jesus, our Savior, and the, ponder the reality that he is the light of the world, is what does it mean for us to be people of light? What does it mean for us to be people of the light? Our, our short Advent series is called People of the Incarnation. The incarnation is just a fancy theological word that means God came to this earth as a human being. God came and dwelled among us. And we've been looking at not necessarily traditional Christmas passages, but ones that reflect on this reality that God came into the world, and in particular, they force us to reckon with something that we maybe don't always think about at Christmas time. Two weeks ago, we looked at Philippians 2, and we, we said that Advent, or the Christmas season, is an opportunity for us to ponder and pursue humility just like God, who came into this world as a man. And today, is that Christmas season invites us to reflect on what does it mean to be people of light. Now, to do that, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. Uh, it's at the end of your Bible. It's probably the fourth to last book. It's a, it's a letter written by the Apostle John. The disciple who was once known by Jesus as a son of thunder, but eventually became known as the apostle of love. The one who was perhaps closer to Jesus during his earthly life than any other human being. To our knowledge, he was the last living uh, disciple of Jesus. 
And John picks up his pen late in life, and he pens this letter to a series of churches to not only clarify who Jesus is in the true gospel, but how we are called to live in light of that reality as people of light. He does so by first reflecting, just like his gospel, on the reality of the incarnation, that God came to this world. The word of life came into the world. So, what does it mean for us to be people of the light? Let's read. There's only ten verses together. That which, we, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Merry Christmas. You're like, why in the world are we looking at this particular passage at Christmas time? Give me some shepherds and some angels, not this vague idea of we touched him, we saw him, we, we heard him. Well, John is not only telling the story that Jesus came into the world, but reflecting on why and why it matters. This this section of scripture, this chapter, breaks into kind of two clear parts. The first is verses 1 to 4. It's his introduction and reason for writing to the churches. And section 2 is a charge to live as people of the light, verses 5 to 10. Now, if you're a grammar person or if you're like an English teacher, that first sentence is just throwing you for loops, isn't it? Not that you don't understand it, but it is a run-on sentence. Verses 1 to 3 is all one sentence, and it's not until you get halfway through verse 3 that you even know what the sentence is about, what he's actually trying to say. We see uh, halfway through verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So we have to wait two and a half verses before we see what in the world is this sentence about, and it's this. We proclaim Jesus to you so that you may have fellowship with us and God. We are writing this letter so that our joy may be complete in you and in your understanding of who Jesus is. But the first two and a half verses are all of these qualifiers of this is who Jesus is. This is who he is. Let me read it again. That which was from the beginning, so Jesus is from the beginning, he's more than just a man, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, the life was revealed or made manifest, and we have seen it, 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. John's long verbose words basically come down to two important things. Jesus is the eternal word of God that existed from the beginning. He is fully God. The word revealed to us. The light revealed to us. And second, Jesus came in the flesh. We touched him. We saw him. We heard him. Do you notice the sensory language of saying Jesus was real and he was really a man? And so what he is saying in these two and a half verses is Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Now this doesn't sound like a A lot of news to us. In fact, that's basic Christian doctrine or Christian teaching. But I want to remind you, it's basic Christian teaching because New Testament writers like John made sure that we understood this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what we believe. You must believe, it's what he's saying, you must believe that Jesus is God and that Jesus came into the flesh, he was fully man, in order to have fellowship with God and to have fellowship with us. Essentially, what he's saying is if you don't believe in these two basic realities, then you're not a Christian. You don't have fellowship or relationship with God, and you don't have fellowship or relationship with us as part of his church. So to be a Christian, you must believe the right things about who Jesus is. Now, why is this such a dividing line for John and for Christians over the centuries? Why is it important that we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Simply put, if Jesus were not God, then his sacrifice for us would have been inspirational, would have been heroic even, but it would not have been sufficient to make payment for our sins. See, how could a finite man pay for the sins of humanity in a short period of time? Simply not possible. He couldn't. Jesus had to be God in order to pay this infinite debt that we owe for our sin against God. But if Jesus weren't fully man, he wouldn't have been able to live life in our place. His righteous life that's credited to us by faith, his sacrificial death in our place was as a man. You see, Jesus had to pay a a debt that only man could pay for their sin. Now, there's more to it than that, but suffice it to say, to be a Christian, it matters that you believe the right things about Jesus. It matters who Jesus claims to be, so much that the apostle of love, John, says, if you don't believe these things to be true about Jesus, then you don't have fellowship with God. You don't have a relationship with God, and you don't have fellowship with us. You're outside the church. But then, is being a Christian only about what we believe? And getting those things right, does it matter how we live if we believe the right thing about Jesus? And his answer to that question is absolutely. Verses 5 to 10. We are called to live as people of the light. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, he says. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, of his, son, of Jesus his son, cleanses us from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar... That's God. We call God a liar. I don't think this is going to go well for us. 
and his word is not in us. And so what we read here is that as Christians, it matters what you believe and it matters how you act. It matters how you live. Believing the right doctrine or right things about Jesus does not give you a pass to act like a jerk. But simply being nice and kind does not make you a Christian either. We must hold tightly to right doctrine or right teaching about Jesus and right living that is in line with the doctrine we say we believe. Now, it seems like in today's world, you have to pick between the two, doesn't it? Seems like those who are most concerned about truth and right doctrine, sometimes in their defense of it, are absolute jerks to everybody else. As if all that matters is that you're right and you can own people and how right you are. On the other side, there are those who emphasize, rightly I think, love. But then in an effort to be unifying and more loving, they abandon any doctrinal distinctions that the Bible holds about ultimate truth and reality. As if love trumps everything and what we believe doesn't really matter all that much. And John says to both of those people, no! See, biblical Christianity doesn't choose one side or the other, either right doctrine or right living, gospel doctrine or gospel culture. John makes absolutely clear it matters that you, what you believe about Jesus. In order to have fellowship with God and with other Christians, you need to believe the truth about him. You need to hold fast to gospel doctrine. But he also emphasizes that our lives are to be lived in light of these truths that we say that we believe and brought in line in what I would call, or others would call, gospel culture. Both are needed. Right teaching, right living. See, in speaking to many of you over the years, this is what so many of you have told me what's resonated so deeply about Rock Hill Community Church. That we care about the Bible deeply in proclaiming the truth, but we also care about how we live together in light of that teaching. Now, many of you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ here, but many of you found this place already as Christians. And one of the things that you were drawn to is that we held fast to both. See, many of you came from churches that preached right doctrine, but the culture of that church wasn't in any way driven by that doctrine. It preached grace, but never practiced it. It claimed to be all about the gospel of Jesus, but seemed more to be about political talking points, either on the right or the left, than about what Jesus was actually about. It talked about loving one another, and yet gossip and slander was commonplace and tolerated in your midst. Or other people came here because in a desire to be relevant, the church that you were going to abandoned what Christians have believed and taught for 2,000 years in order to be more culturally appropriate and relevant. They changed or compromise the truth, as if our culture gets to speak in on what is actually true and right, as opposed to God revealing to us. And one of the things that you've loved so much is that you don't have to choose between the two. Because as Christians, we shouldn't choose between the two, but right doctrine leads to right living. So what does this gospel culture look like? Well, John writes, this is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The essence of the message of Jesus, he boils down to God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, that's not exactly the way I would probably put it, but John spent a lot more time with Jesus than I did. 
And then he explains what he means by that with five if-then statements in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. What does he mean when he says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all? I think there's two main ideas communicated when we say that God is light, or also, as he says in other places, that Jesus is light. Now, Jesus is God, right? So, talking about God, we're talking about Jesus, one and the same, okay? I don't know if I just said heresy there. They're part of the Trinity. They're both God. Okay. First, you're like, wait a second. Did we just do something? No. Here we go. Light is synonymous with truth here. Light reveals what is actually there. It shows forth what is true and what is false. We have this phrase in our language, shedding light on a situation. What do we mean? It means that we reveal what's actually there. If you were to walk into a dark room, you often don't know the truth of your surroundings until someone flips on the light switch and the light shines so that you can see things as they truly are. Now, hopefully that happens before you step on a Lego or you bash your shin on something, right? Light reveals what is truly there. It's synonymous with the truth or the revealing of the truth. Second, light is synonymous with God's holiness or moral purity. There's a moral quality to light versus darkness being implied here. That God's holiness, his moral purity is light. And that sin and evil are darkness or the opposite of God's moral character. It's interesting to note here about this metaphor that light always pierces darkness. When light and darkness collide, light wins. Darkness is beaten back, not the other way around. You can shield the light, but when it's released, light always overcomes darkness. Now, the holiness of Jesus described in the gospel was more often compared to light piercing into the darkness than about something clean that could be made dirty, like a, a white dress or a white dress shirt. While white dresses rightly fear dirt, light doesn't fear darkness. Now, both metaphors are used, and so we need to exercise wisdom. But more often than not, holiness is spoken of as light piercing the darkness. Light doesn't fear darkness. Okay? So light here, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. It's talking about truth and revealing truth and moral purity or holiness. But John here in his letter... And then throughout his Gospels has made the assertion that Jesus is God as well. Therefore, Jesus is the light. Let me just give you a couple examples of those. Bear with me. There's a great payoff at the end here. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. When John is starting his Gospel or about Jesus' life, he says this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus says later in John's gospel this about himself in chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, in chapter 9, verse 5, as long as I am the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So now John summarizes the message of Jesus, the essence of his message. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What exactly does that mean for us then as people of the light? People that are shaped and formed by who Jesus is. We are Jesus' people. Well, he makes five if-then statements about the implications. He writes, if we say that we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, that means sin, the opposite of God's holiness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, in the truth, in the moral purity of God, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Those who know God, those who have fellowship with God, relationship with God, we're told cannot continue to walk in darkness and evil if God himself is light. We, as his followers, must walk in the light, meaning that we walk in the truth and moral purity of God himself. When we do, we have fellowship with each other and we have fellowship with God. He goes on to say, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so what he's saying is we show ourselves to be Christians by living in the light of who God is. It's evidence that living in the light, who God is, that we begin to look like him, that we are his followers, that we are in fellowship with him. Now, does this mean, Christian, that we're perfect? That we never screw up, that we never sin, that we never fall short? Well, of course not. Why? A couple reasons. It says that the blood of his son Jesus covers over our sin, but if we were sinless, then he wouldn't have needed to send his son in the first place to cover us. That's kind of the whole point of why he came. Second, in verses 8, 9, and 10, three more if-then statements. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. All right, so three things here. Those who say that they have no sin deceive themselves. They lie to themselves. And he says the truth is not in you. Remember, light is moral purity and truth. So those who claim to be sinless are self-deceived. Those who say, I don't need a Savior. They don't see themselves rightly. They are in darkness. They are not in light. Now, we have an amazing ability to lie to ourselves, don't we? Things that if other people were to say out loud, we'd be like, that person's crazy. But when we say them to ourselves, we believe it. Right? We easily justify things that we would never let others get away with. I need this. They don't understand how much pressure I'm under. Well, this will keep me from doing something that's even worse, so I should do that in order to just release this little pressure here. Or or even total self-deception. I'm not a sinner. I don't need a savior. I'm a good person. The Apostle Paul hits with this truth bomb. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so the light allows us to see ourselves actually as we really are. Those who need a savior. But even worse than that, if we say we don't have sin, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we lie to ourselves, and we call God a liar, not us. The whole point of God sending Jesus, the light, into the world was that we needed a Savior. Jesus says this in John chapter 3 when talking to Nicodemus about as stark words as possible. He says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. There you have it. We pretend we have no sin. When we pretend we have no sin, we are self-deceived, and we call God a liar, and that's not going to go well for us. So what do we do if we want to have fellowship with him? We need to walk in the light, but we don't always walk in the light. This is why the blood of Jesus must cover over our sin. This is why we need the gospel. Why why he had to come 
and live and die and rise in our place because we needed a savior. We needed someone to, to bear our penalty and take it so that we could live in fellowship with God. So if that's true, and it is, how do we then walk as people of the light when we mess up? When we sin? When we do something and we're like, ah, not again. Can't believe I'm still doing that. The key to walking as people of the light is found in verse 9. Let me read it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we know that the blood of his son Jesus covers over our sin. But here now we say, we read, if we confess our sin, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. To forgive us means to cancel the debt that we owe for our sin. Most of you have probably had to work through forgiveness towards someone in your life, and it isn't easy, is it? You had to answer the question, am I going to continually hold this debt over their head, or am I willing to forgive them? Well, God's answer to us when it came to forgiveness in Jesus is this, forgiven for those who confess their sins. But not just that. The promise here is not just to be forgiven of our sin, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us clean. When was the longest time you ever went between a shower or a bath? Now, if you're a young boy, this question doesn't apply to you because you forget and you just don't know and you don't think you need that. But as an adult, right? Everybody's like, oh yeah, I have young boys. It's so true. They stink. They do. I have to take a shower every day or I stink. I love like the morning routine of taking a shower. But have you ever been to the Boundary Waters? And like you're there for a week and you just start to get a little bit ripe. And you jump into the, to the lake, but it's just not the same. How do you know it's not the same? Because when you get home and you finally take a shower, half your tan is gone, right? <laughs> but when was the longest that you went, the dirtiest that you were before you got a shower or a bath? One of the metaphors used to picture what Jesus does for us in the gospel is that he makes you clean. He removes the stain of your sin, your sense of defilement. Guys, this is amazing. This actually, when understood, will set you free. That, that, that in the gospel, God forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That includes both the sin that, we, that we've done, that we've, we feel immense regret about. We feel such shame that we did that, that we hurt that person. We didn't mean to. We did it, though. And we walk around with a sense of guilt, a sense of shame, feeling like, I'm such a loser. I can't believe I did that. In the gospel, it is wiped clean. We are forgiven. But it also means that sometimes traumatic things happen to us. And after traumatic things happen to us, we feel the stain or the sense of defilement of sin deep in our bones. We start to believe messages about us that God doesn't say are true. And we start to live and make decisions in light of those messages. And what the gospel says to us is that that is not who you are. That you're actually cleansed from the stain and defilement of your sin. 
so that now you can actually start making new choices in light of a new story that is true for you in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is this. All the things that Jesus earned, all the things that he accomplished by faith are yours so that God chooses to view you now Jesus' resume rather than your own performance. That sounds like good news. It is. That's the heart of the gospel. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so now we live out of this new identity as people of the light. We take on the character of the one that we have fellowship with. Let me ask you something really practical. Do you have anybody in your life that you regularly confess sins to? You should. One of the great things about fellowship with other Christians is the ability to confess our sins one to another. Now, Catholic Christians have the practice of confession, the sacrament of confession, where they believe you need to come and confess your sins to a priest and that he kind of mediates between you and God and absolves you of your sins. Protestants have correctly surmise that you don't actually have to confess your sins to a priest, that there is one true and great high priest and mediator between God and man, and it isn't that guy. His name is Jesus. He's the true and great high priest. We read all about this in the book of Hebrews, meaning we now have access to God because the mediator is Jesus, and he's done it for us. So we can freely go to God ourselves. But sometimes I think as Protestant Christians, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And we've forgotten what a good gift of God confession of sin to another person is. It brings things out of the secret, out of the darkness, and into the light. And when we bring it into the light, it sets us free. The Apostle James wrote, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. Have someone pray for you that you may be healed. When was the last time you confessed your darkest sins and secrets to another brother or sister in Christ only to have them not reject you but empathize with you and pray for you? Brothers and sisters, that experience is unbelievably healing. It's incredibly freeing. But you know what binds you and keeps you in bondage? Secret sin. Sin that stays in the darkness. That you tuck away, that you think if anybody ever found out about that, they would never have anything to do with me. Guys, mold grows in the dark. It doesn't grow in the light. In the same way, sin grows and festers when it is hidden and in the dark. It must be brought to light through confession where it will then wither and die. See, we are people of the incarnation. We are a community of light. That doesn't mean that we are sinless. Jesus had to come. But it does mean that when we do sin, we bring it into the light and confess it and receive the healing and the forgiveness of Christ. One of the things that characterizes a community of light is a willingness to confess and own our sin. Now, what can possibly free people to confess their sins one to another? I don't want people knowing the worst parts about me. 
It is only the acceptance that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us free. Where we are accepted not on the basis of our performance, but rather we are accepted on the basis of the performance of another, Jesus Christ, someone who's perfect. If that's true, and it is, then we have the acceptance and the approval of the only one whose verdict of us really actually matters. And if I have his approval, I don't need yours. Do you see how that sets you free? Do you see how that sets you free to not be perfect? To confess your sin and to live in the light Two weeks ago, we saw that the incarnation of Jesus sets us free to pursue humility. Today, we see that the incarnation of Jesus calls us to live in the light, and it frees us to confess our sins as people of the light. I'm glad the light has come into the world, aren't you? Some of you have not experienced the freedom of walking in the light. You've never once confessed sin to another and experienced the freedom of bringing that into the light. Could I just encourage you, let today be the day. We're gonna have a prayer team up here at the end of the service. You don't have to talk to them, but I would encourage you to have a friend or two in your life where one of the regular things that you do with one another is confess sin and pray for each other that you might experience God's healing. The things that you probably wanna hide are the things that you probably should confess and watch their power over you begin to weaken and break. Here's the thing, guys. You cannot manage your sin. You either confess it and kill it or it will devour and consume you. At our church, we have these things called DNA groups, men with men, women with women. It's a friendship of love and care where you're free to confess your sins, to be prayed for, that you might walk in the light together. Because when we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pastor Kyle, what happens if I'm committed to walking in the light, if I'm trusting in Jesus? What happens when I do sin? I'm so glad you asked. Actually, if you look at the next two verses, I'll just read them because it just makes it so plain. 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. Pretty simple, right? Sin, we're against it. We shouldn't do that. But... If anyone does sin, okay, that's us, right? We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Jesus paid the price for your sin. And not only that, he is right now serving as your advocate, your lawyer before the Father, pleading for you. Reminding him, no double jeopardy. You want to see the scars again? Paid for that one too. Here's what we learn from 1 John chapter 1. What we believe matters and how we live matters. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. The light, Jesus, has come into the world so that we would live as people of the light, having fellowship with him and with each other. And one of the ways that we live in the light is by not pretending to have no sin, but freely confessing our sins so that we might receive his forgiveness. The gospel then sets us free to live in a culture where we don't have to pretend and we don't have to perform for one another, but we're free to confess sin and receive the forgiveness of Jesus.
And so one of the things we say here is, in this church, it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay there. We, we bring our sin into the light and we receive forgiveness and healing. This Christmas season, every time you see Christmas lights, remember that the light of the world has come. His light is dispelling the darkness. And he is inviting you as his follower to live as people of the light. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it provokes us and challenges us and calls us to a different kind of life. Lord, I pray for the person right now that that is listening and they are having an internal battle right now because there's something that they've never told anyone. And they're just even now beginning to hope, could I possibly tell someone and not be rejected? Holy Spirit, would you do your work in their heart and would you set them free? Lord, would you make us a people where it's okay to not be okay, where we freely confess our sins, knowing that our righteousness, our right standing before you, God, is found in Jesus. And God, would you help us to encourage each other, to provoke one another, to live in the light as you are in the light. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.